If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. We're studying through the book of Exodus, and our theme for the whole book is rescued. So we're going to be looking at these verses today as we look at locust legions. And so they come like an army. But As we begin this morning, um, let me read this illustration to you. An attitude indicator is an important piece of equipment on a plane. It shows the position of the plane in relationship to the horizon. As the plane climbs, there's a nose-high attitude, meaning that the nose of the plane is above the horizon. A nose-down attitude for too long means it's going to crash. So monitoring a plane's attitude is important, and sometimes it's necessary to change the attitude in order to change the performance, right? So we reach the point of the story in Exodus where Pharaoh is about to crash. His nose-down attitude has made his heart impenetrable, but God continues his assault upon the Egyptian powers and idolatry for instruction purposes as various plagues are unleashed. And so we've seen quite a few. We're up to, I think it's the eighth plague today. And so, you know, when I think about an attitude indicator, there's been times in my life when my attitude indicator has been nose-down. How about you all? You ever been in that kind of a situation where, you're, where you're, your attitude indicator is nose down? It normally happens because of pride in my life. That's normally what, for me, you get pride and then I get upset because I want something to go a certain way and when it doesn't, my attitude is just nose down. And if I don't change my attitude and confess my pride, I'm going to crash and burn. And so I would just say to you, how many of us can relate to having a nose down attitude from time to time? What causes us to have that attitude? Sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's, it's something completely different than that. But we need to identify it because if we don't identify that nose-down attitude and what's causing it, we're going to crash and we're going to burn. And so Pharaoh's been refusing to obey God's command to let his people go. And because of pride, his attitude has been nose-down for seven plagues. And the Egyptians have been tolerant of Pharaoh's attitude during all of those plagues and have held their tongues, but that's about to change. They're going to begin encouraging Pharaoh to be obedient to God's command, but his pride will prevail. Surely his relationship with his people is beginning to erode as they recognize the pride in his heart. And so the author wants us to understand our big idea today, we'll see it throughout this passage, that pride ruins relationships. It, man, it just does. And we see that with Pharaoh as we look at this passage of Scripture today. We're going to see the different relationships that are being ruined because of his pride. But before we get to that, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you today. We're excited to be in your house. We're excited to hear your word, Lord God. We're excited to learn from your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Would Would your Holy Spirit just have sway in each heart and mind, Lord God? that any attitude that we've come in here today with, that it would just be gone, Lord God. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you want to share with us today, that, Lord, you would transform us by the power of your word. And so, Lord, we, we fully give ourselves to you today. Would you speak to us through your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Exodus chapter 10. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2. We see some instruction here that's taking place. This is what God's word says. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. And so we see this instruction here. This is the second plague in the third cycle of plagues. So we're almost done, right? Moses is instructed to go to Pharaoh just like plagues, like he was told in plagues two and five. Where we see a difference is in the plague of frogs and the plague of livestock. The Lord just says to Pharaoh, go, or says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him. But with this eighth plague, Moses is told to go to Pharaoh, but we are not told ahead of time what he is supposed to say. And all of those other ones, the Lord then tells him what he's supposed to say. Now, that's not to mean that he didn't tell him. The author just doesn't record that here. Instead, the Lord follows up his command to go with an explanation that was for the benefit of Moses and the Israelites in general throughout their generations. So we see again the Lord's initiative here. We see that he had hardened Pharaoh's heart and his official's heart. So it wasn't just Pharaoh's heart, but the official's heart as well. And this was certainly on purpose. The Lord wanted to perform his miraculous signs among the Egyptians. And from the beginning, it was so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that God is the Lord. But here we see another purpose. It was also that the Israelites would know that God is the Lord. You see, it's all tied together. These are important things that are taking place because God wants these people that he's created to know who he is. And so... He then brings this other aspect in about sharing with the next generation. In the ancient Near East, information was handed down through oral tradition. They didn't have a bunch of books that were written down. So they just were able to talk with each other about things that had happened. That's what God is talking to, uh, to, Pharaoh, or to Moses about here. When the Israelites were finally free from the Egyptian slavery, they would be able to share with future generations how God miraculously and powerfully brought plagues on the land of Egypt to encourage Pharaoh and his officials to let them go. And so we see our first principle today, and that's sharing about God's miraculous power with future generations is vital. We need to be doing that as well. God's encouraging the Israelites to do that, but we need to be doing the same thing. When I think about that, I think about what God has done here at Idaville UB Church. We have so much to share with future generations. Do you realize that? God provided the old school property for the church to buy in the 1960s and move from the little white clapboard church up of Idaville, York Springs Road, right? He provided this property. He provided for the multi-purpose room expansion in the 1990s, didn't he? We have so much. He provided miraculously for the elimination of debt on multiple, he's done it multiple times. From the debt on this building to the debt on that building to some tax debt. He's provided miraculously for, through transformed lives. Just take a moment to think about those that you know that accepted the Lord here in this place. Those that have been obedient to go into believer's baptism. I mean, just take a moment to think about the children that have been transformed. We have a lot to hand down to future generations, what God has done here. And I think of us personally, how has God shown his miraculous power in your life? How have you shared that, or have you shared that with family members recently? Sometimes it's good just to reflect again on what God has done, how he's been 
used his miraculous power in our lives. And so our first next step today, you can find on the back of your communication card too, is to share God's miraculous power of, what is it, with who you're going to share it with. So I want to encourage you to think about that today. And so with the instruction complete, Moses and Aaron go to see Pharaoh. In fact, what we see next in verses 3 to 11 is the interrogation that takes place. And so look at verses 3 to 11 with me if you would. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, um, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that's growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's official said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said, but just who will be going? Moses answered, We will go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No. Have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So we see this interrogation taking place, but we see three questions. The first one comes through Moses and Aaron in verses 3 to 6. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they gave him the message from the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. We already talked about what that represented in, in previous messages. But the first question is this, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That's God speaking. So Pharaoh was dealing with pride, which affected his relationship with the Lord. You see, pride ruins relationships. His relationship with God is ruined because of this pride. So we see our second principle here today, and that humility before the Lord pleases him. Let me just give you a little biblical background. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, we see these words. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4. Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. i got to sneak back here into the New Testament. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 11 tell us this. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If, you, if, if so, the host... Who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, It says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
James writing in chapter 4, verse 6, just the second half of that, says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Old Testament scripture there. And then Micah says this in chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Stewart in his commentary says this, when individuals or groups willingly acknowledge God's sovereignty, not in general but over them, they assume their proper position and role in the created order. When people do not acknowledge the one true God as their own Lord, however, they are in rebellion against their very nature and eventually must be forcibly taught who is boss. The Bible teaches that everyone will eventually acknowledge the lordship of the only God. The Egyptians were required to acknowledge it, however reluctantly, through the plagues before Yahweh. So, I don't, it's never by chance. I just want you to know that. I'm reading my devotions this morning, and it's a 40-day thing that I started 13 days ago. And it's, um, uh, it's just this devotional for, um, like, collegiate day of prayer, 40-day uh, prayer thing. And so day 13 today is called The Step of Humility. It's by Rhonda Huey Matheson. And she's using Exodus chapter 10, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? I want you to listen to what she writes because it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. This is what she says. <clears throat> Humility is the reality of our entire dependence and all of its dimensions. Pride... The root of all sin is the loss of the sense of God and the exaggerated belief about who we are. Until we humble ourselves before God, we cannot truly abide in God's presence or experience his favor. Our failure or unwillingness to humble ourselves explains why God so, oft seems, uh, why God so often seems distant. Humbling ourselves is acknowledging our position as God's creatures and yielding to his rightful place over our lives. Nothing is as dangerous as pride and self-assertion. Nothing is more advantageous than the grace of humility. Often we make a pretense of humbling ourselves that is both shallow and feeble in its consequence. True humility requires us to empty ourselves and be filled with him. This is where we discover the reality of God's presence and power. Isn't that good? And that was this morning. I was like, oh, Lord, thank you. That's pretty cool. How he orchestrated that I started this 13 days ago so it would fall right on today, right? We serve an awesome God, a sovereign God who's in control of everything. So are you being humble before the Lord or are you allowing pride to ruin your relationship with him? Pride can cause us to not obey the Lord. We may not ask fellow believers for help because we're too proud. Repentance and accepting salvation from the Lord means that we have to humble ourselves, right? Admit that we are a sinner and that we need a Savior. And when we refuse to humble ourselves, we cannot benefit from the Lord's wisdom. His desire is that we walk with Him in humility. So maybe you're ready to take the second next step today, and that's to confess that my pride has ruined my relationship with the Lord and seek to be humble before Him. I think all of us can do that. After the Lord uh, questioned Pharaoh, He gives him a command. 
Let my people go so they can worship me. And then we see a consequence here as well. He says, if you refuse, I will bring locusts into your land tomorrow. They will devour everything that survived the hail storm that we uh, learned about last week from Pastor Mark. These locusts will fill every Egyptian house. It will be unprecedented. It will impact everyone. And then it says to just Moses, and probably Aaron as well, turned and left Pharaoh. And then we see... Pharaoh's officials that come in to the picture, they have the second question that we're going to look at here in this part. After Moses and Aaron left, Pharaoh's officials confronted him. Their question was a how long question too. They were like, how long will this man be a snare to us? And then they're like, we've had enough. Seven plagues are, are plenty for us. Why don't you just let the people go? That's what his officials are saying to him. Let him go worship the Lord. What's the big deal? I don't understand. And this is pretty significant, as McKay brings out, that oriental courtiers spoke so bluntly to Pharaoh as a measure of the desperation that they felt. They understood, I mean, most of their crops are gone, and more of their flocks and herds are gone because of this hailstorm. And they're like, he's talking about locusts coming and devouring everything else that's still around. They're like, we can't, what are we going to do? We can't live like this anymore. And so Pharaoh's officials understood the seriousness of the threatened plague of locusts. They were already reeling from the devastation caused by the hailstorm. Locusts were not a new problem for them. They knew how devastating this plague would be. Locusts would come from time to time. McKay continues and says, Though weighing at most two grams, a locust is able to eat its own weight of vegetation in a day. Swarms may cover many square miles and involve billions of insects. The devastating impact of locusts was feared and viewed as a sign of divine judgment. We see that when we look at the, um, the book of Joel. I've got to find it here. Yeah. Joel chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkard, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because, the, uh, because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has, uh, has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. That's the devastation. These locusts are coming in like an army, like a legion. Amos chapter 7, verses 1 to 3 tell us this. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing a swarm of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. So Amos saw this vision of what was to come. And he was like crying out to God, and he says, oh, Lord, like Jacob's not going to survive. They're too small. And God says, okay, I'll relent. So Pharaoh's officials already understood that, that Egypt was ruined from the hail, and it seems as though Pharaoh was the last person to recognize this. But you see, pride ruins relationships. His pride, because he doesn't want to give up his power. He doesn't want to recognize that someone or something is more powerful than him. He doesn't want to recognize that God is in control, that none of the gods of Egypt are worth anything. He doesn't want to make that, he doesn't want to make that statement. He doesn't want to go that far. 
And so in his pride, he's ruining the relationship with his officials. You see, Pharaoh did not want to submit to the Lord because it would strip him of power and authority. He was willing to allow his pride to ruin his relationship with his officials. And so the plea from Pharaoh's officials must have had some impact because he had Moses and Aaron brought back. And so in verses 8 to 11, we see this third question. It seems at first that the conflict between Pharaoh and the Lord has ended when he tells Moses and Aaron to go worship the Lord their God. But then he goes, he asks this question, but just who will be going? He still wants to be in control. He probably already knew the answer, but he wanted to be sure. And so Pharaoh was hesitant to let everyone leave because he knew the impact it would have on Egypt. He wasn't stupid. And then we see Moses' answer. He says, everyone and everything, it's all going. All ages, all sexes, all flocks and herds. And the reason was because they were going to celebrate a festival to the Lord, which would involve men, women, and children. That leads us to our third principle today, that worship should be a family affair. When the laws um, for proper worship were given later on, the Israelite men were required to return to Jerusalem for three festivals each year. The, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Festival of Booths. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 16 to 17, we read these words. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, this is one of my favorite passages in the, in the Old Testament. It says this, These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. So he's talking to the parents here. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Do you think a, a relationship with God in, involves every aspect of your life? We see that here. He's giving this instruction to the Israelites through Moses, and he's like, you're supposed to impress them on your children, but it's supposed to be a lifestyle change, right? It's supposed to affect every aspect of your life. When, when you're sitting at home and when you're walking along the road, when you're lying down, when you get up, that's, that's pretty much the whole day. When Judy would take our kids to, uh, to school in the mornings, whether it was in California or, or here in Pennsylvania, this, she would do this. She, she would have them pray. That's how they spent their time in the car going to school. She would ask them about prayer requests with their friends. And they would pray. It, it was so important just modeling this all the time. Darren Williamson shares six ways that family uh, worship will bless your family. Uh, this is uh, from online. He says this, family worship will unify your family. Family worship will provide space for family dialogue. You can actually talk. Family worship will become a life-giving spiritual tradition. Family worship will reveal weaknesses in the family unit. Like you're, you're realizing what's going on there. Family worship will invigorate Christian marriages. And finally, family worship will provide training ground for worship in the assembly of the church. Like, our family worship at home prepares our children to be in the worship service. So worship should be more than just for men. It should be encouraged and modeled by men as the spiritual leaders of the household. 
guys, we have to step up and lead our families in prayer, in Bible reading, in worship, in church attendance, in scripture memorization, in modeling the fruit of the Spirit, and so much more. That's our role, guys. That's our privilege. Don't look at it as, oh, man, i got to be the spiritual leader of my household. Great. No, man, this is a privilege. You should be overjoyed at the opportunity to lead your spouse, your wife, your children into a greater knowledge of who God is, into a personal relationship with him. Guys, what an incredible privilege. You're not going to have any greater joy in life than that. And guess what? Your wives are going to love the fact that you're leading them. Your children are going to love the fact that you're leading them. They want that. They hunger for that. So guys, don't, don't shirk that responsibility. Embrace it. And so when we lead, our families will follow. So maybe you're ready for this third next step today, and that's to lead my family in worshiping the Lord by... I'm just asking you to think of one thing today. I talked about several, like in prayer, in Bible reading, in worship, in church attendance, scripture memorization, modeling the fruit of the Spirit. Just choose one to start with today. And then if you're part of a family unit that does not have a husband or a father, then ladies, I encourage you to lead. Take the lead in that. After Moses answered Pharaoh's question, Pharaoh responded. Here was his response. Only the men can go to worship the Lord. Before Pharaoh says no, he makes a sarcastic remark. It doesn't really come across that way in the NIV or in some of the modern translations. Um, it more sounds like a blessing. He's, like he's blessing them on their journey, but he's not. So Stewart in his commentary says it this way. Were Pharaoh speaking modern colloquial English, he might have said something like, Oh, sure, that's fine. <laughs> and it would certainly prove that Yahweh was with you if I actually allowed all your family members to go with you. But look, it's obvious you have evil in mind. So he's being sarcastic here. He's like, this is not going to happen. And then he also accused Moses of planning this, something evil. Pharaoh knew that if he let the men go, they would return to be with their wives and children, and any evil they were planning would be thwarted. But Moses and Aaron then were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh was obviously angry with Moses' answer, like everybody and everything. Like, no. And Pharaoh's pride was ruining his relationship with Moses and Aaron. Again, pride, pride ruins relationships. So the interrogation is done, and it's time for the invasion. Look at verses 12 to 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground un until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit of the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in the land, uh, in all the land of Egypt. Wow. 
So the Lord just tells Moses to stretch out his hand over Egypt. It's time. And this would begin the invasion. The locusts would consume everything growing in the fields that had been left by the hail. Certain crops and fruits were unharmed by that hail. Moses obeyed and did, and then God did the miraculous. McKay says, made blow represents a word used for driving sheep or guiding armies. Here the Lord acts as a shepherd and general to ensure that an east wind would blow in from the desert zone between the Nile and the Gulf of Suez or even all the way from Arabia. So God was bringing this unprecedented swarm of locusts from a faraway location where they had hatched and matured. And they were riding the Lord's special wind all day and and night in order to arrive in Egypt at just the right time and to cover a specific area of land. And so our fourth principle is this, that God's power is unlimited and it rules over every land. Pharaoh needed to understand that God's power would go beyond the land of Egypt. He's the creator God. His power covers the entire world the entire universe, everything. And so the locusts did their job. They invaded all Egypt. They settled down in every area of the country. The swarm of locusts was unprecedented before or after. There were so many of them that the ground was completely covered. The land was now completely desolate and bare. Warren Wearsby says, in destroying the vegetation, God not only left the land bankrupt, but he triumphed over Osiris, the Egyptian god of fertility and crops. He also proved that he had control over the wind. God also showed his power over other Egyptian gods. We see Min, the patron god of crops. So like he, was over, he had power over this guy. Isis, the goddess of life who prepared flax for clothes. Nepri, the god of grain. Anubis, the guardian of the fields. And Senehem, the protector against pests. God was, this was all, God was completely over all of them. He was in control. And Pharaoh realized the extent of his pride at this point. And so there's an intercession that takes place. We see that in verses 16 to 19. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. So we see this intercession that's taking place. Pharaoh quickly, I mean, there's urgency here, summoned Moses and Aaron. He was perhaps in a panic at this point because he realized we don't have anything to eat. It's all gone. There's no oasis along the Nile River anymore. It was as desolate as the desert that extended around them. And so he confessed. Don't know if it was genuine, but he confesses. And the difference between Pharaoh's confession this time and after the hailstorm was that he acknowledged who he had sinned against, the Lord God and Moses and Aaron. Our fifth principle is this, that God is honored when we acknowledge that we have sinned against him. Hamilton says this, all sin, regardless of the perpetrator and the victim, is first sin against God. This posture is what makes the difference between guilt for sin and sorrow for sin. Guilt says, I'm sorry I did it. Sorrow says, I am sorry I did it to him. 
Guilt is feeling sorry for one's sins because they are destroying one's own life. Sorrow is feeling sorry for one's sin because they grieve uh, and break God's heart. There's a difference between guilt and sorrow. So do you have sorrow for your sin because it has grieved and broken God's heart? You see, pride ruins our relationship with God because pride is sin. Maybe you're ready to take this fourth next step today, and that's to honor God by acknowledging that my sin of, just let him know what it is, is against him. Once we acknowledge our sin and own it before the Lord, then we can seek forgiveness, and that's exactly what Pharaoh did. He sought forgiveness. Pharaoh sought the Lord's forgiveness and Moses and Aaron's forgiveness for his sin of pride. And after seeking forgiveness, he asked for relief from the plague of locusts. And so he says, please pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague from me. Stuart goes on and says, Pharaoh's point was that he saw Egypt dying as a result of the combined effect of the hailstorm and the locust invasion, not merely that the plague was deadly in some sense. His words do not suggest a focus on a plague, but rather on death. Pharaoh was beginning to get the point. He realized that the plagues were leading to death, not merely inconvenience or temporary hardships. And so I like this phrase. It comes again from Stuart's commentary. It says, Moses proposed but God disposed. So Moses simply cries out to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up all the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Every last locust was removed from Egypt. I bet you Pharaoh was glad for that, because remember what happened with the frogs? He's like, take the frogs away. And God's like, okay. They just all died right where they were. And they had to scoop them up, and the piles right now to get rid of them, and it stunk so bad. So Pharaoh's probably like, whew, this one worked even better. Like, they're all gone. They completely left. There's not even a single locust left. And so God had to make Pharaoh resolute at this point. We see that in verse 20 in our final point. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. So again, the Lord had to make Pharaoh's heart resolute because he was probably ready to throw in the towel. But but the Lord had one more plague before we get to the final 10th plague. So Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go. As we review this morning, with, with whom are you going to share an example of God's miraculous power? Maybe it's just your spouse, family member today when you're eating lunch. Second, do you need to confess that your pride has ruined your relationship with the Lord and seek to be humble before him today? How are you going to lead your family in worship? Will you honor God by acknowledging that your sin is against Him? And as a body of believers, with whom can we share our examples of God's miraculous power? Maybe it's someone in, in our work setting, someone in our community. And has pride, as a body, has pride ruined our relationship with the Lord? According to the National Geographic website, this uh, illustration, the writer of the illustration says, their kid's version, that is. Um, the pufferfish can inflate into a ball shape to evade predators, also known as a blowfish. These clumsy, clumsy swimmers fill their elastic stomachs with huge amounts of water and sometimes air and blow themselves up to several times their normal size. But these blow-up fish aren't just cute. 
Most pufferfish contain a toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. The toxin is deadly to humans, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There's enough uh, poison in one pufferfish to kill 30 adult humans, and there's no known antidote. Like pufferfish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance to make themselves look bigger than they are, and this pride can become toxic to a marriage, a church, or a friendship. No wonder the late biblical scholar John Stott once said, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. Right? And we talked about the fact that pride can ruin relationships. That's our big idea today. Um, years ago, as a kid growing up, we went to Florida, and uh, I caught one of those puffer fish off of a pier. And as a, you know how far it is up off the water, right? These piers, they're, they're I don't know, 30 feet or so. And as I'm reeling it in, he keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I was like, oh my goodness, this is pretty wild. But uh, I didn't need it. I didn't want to die. Um, I just kicked it back in, and it went like a torpedo. It just kind of twirled around and went back into the water. But, um, but yeah, so anyhow, I want to encourage you with that today. Don't let pride ruin your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, and especially with your Lord. And so, as the worship team uh, prepares um, to sing our final song, and as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. <laughs> We're just so grateful that we can dig into it and hear your voice through it. I pray today, Lord God, that you would, you would accomplish that in hearts and minds as they allow your words to sink deep. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that your Holy Spirit would just transform them in an incredible way. So, Lord, I, just, I lift it all up to you for your honor and praise and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.